Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Earth Justice, a national law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment, taking big polluters and the government to court, no matter who's in office. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. It's the California Report magazine. California is home to more immigrants than any other state. And for so many of us, whether we're immigrants or children or grandchildren of immigrants, that story of migration has shaped our lives. For me, my family's journey is about two different migrations. Britain has fulfilled her mission. It is for India herself now to make her destiny. In 1947, India and Pakistan cast off colonial rule, but they were also carved into separate states, splitting Muslims and Hindus. Peaceful neighbors became enemies. They flee from savagery and butchery that has never been exceeded even in India's stormy history. One million people become refugees overnight. My dad and my grandparents were among those refugees, moving from Lahore, Pakistan, to New Delhi, India. Less than two decades later, my father boarded a ship from India to the U.S. And I know, like a lot of children of immigrants, that any journey of separation is also a history of trauma, of scars. In this encore episode of the California Report magazine, my colleague Sandhya Dirks takes us on a journey back to India, which is also her mother's homeland. It's a journey that could be taken by any child of immigrants, navigating two worlds. Distant mountains are always blue. That was something my mother used to say to me over and over again. Distant mountains are always blue. It is true, especially in India, where the ghats are dark bundles of risen geometry pointing up to the sky. But I think it means more than that now, more than just a description of the Sayadri Mountains seen from far away. 
It is as if the distance itself is coated in dark blue melancholy, the same color of a deepening sky as night falls, the same color that makes it seem like twilight is nostalgia for the day. Distant mountains are always blue. I know this now because my mother is my distant mountain. And this is the walk that Monkey likes to do. I'm Monkey. Monkey, the nickname my mother has had for me for forever. And me, Monkey, I almost died. Yes, well, you almost died several times. My mother is talking about our trips to visit India when I was younger, to visit the place where she was born, where she grew up, the place she left, but that never left her. The same place we are now, in southern India, along the Deccan Plateau, at a spot where the hillside breaks open to become a gorge, where seven waterfalls make their way down through seven pools where the water has eroded the rock. You also almost died in the waterfall. Oh, Sandhya saved my life. You remember that? It was fairly traumatic. When I was 14, my mother got the wild idea to go swimming in the topmost pool. I remember my mother's small bones scaling the rock, her smiling face framed by a mass of dark wild curls as we swam. At one point, she tried to climb out of the pool, put her foot on the lip of the next waterfall, and she slipped on the mossy rock. The current picked up her tiny body and she went streaming over the edge, except I caught her arm and pulled her back to safety. But you didn't know you were saving my life when you did it. Well. You know, you were slipping over the waterfall's <laughs> The lip edge, of the waterfall. And there were seven pools beneath it, so I wasn't unaware, let's say. Sometimes it felt like it was at too early an age from all sorts of things. Somehow my job to save her. The seven waterfalls end in a river that snakes its way below a place called Ajantha, a world heritage site around 30 Buddhist caves carved into the rock face of a giant ravine, forged and painted between the first century BC and sixth century AD. Caves funded by kings, burrowed into rock face for shelter and worship. My mother has spent the last 30 years studying the artwork left behind there, sculpture and paintings and stories from centuries beyond imagining, the trace beginnings of the divine. That trip when I saved my mother was the first time I visited the caves, my mother's caves. My mom was spending the whole year there doing field research for her PhD while I stayed back in the States with my father. I remember I got my first period that year she was gone. I sat in the bathroom, looking at my blood-stained underwear, knowing I'd have to clean up this mess on my own. The caves became ruins of another time, until they were rediscovered by British colonizers, big game hunting. Tell the story. I think the story is somewhat apocryphal, but uh, two Britishers were hunting. And they saw a lion they were chasing, panther, panther whichever, doesn't matter. It's a tiger, actually, I think, it disappear into the sheer cliff. 
My mother, too, disappeared into these caves, spending days and months and years in them, her whole mind focused on reading the stories painted there, stories hidden in the dark. Tell the story. I have watched my mother disappear into other kinds of caves, too. Depression is, after all, a kind of cave. When I was 17, three years after my mom and I first visited her caves, I stopped speaking to her. I was tired of taking care of her. It was a silence that lasted years. Now, decades later, I'm visiting my mother in India again because she's been depressed. So I've made the 20 plus hour trip from California. I've come here because she needs me, I think. But if I'm being honest, I've come here for myself too, to trace some scars of my own. We're going to make a familiar journey. We're going back to Ajantha, back to her caves, the place that makes her happiest. And also, in whatever way, the last place I think I truly remember being mothered. Early morning, Bombay, my mother's city, now called Mumbai, just before the sun rises. This is the sound I remember, lying on my back on a hard mattress, beneath the incessant whirring of a ceiling fan, in rooms that smell of old books and softly rotting wood. These are some of the sounds of my childhood, but really, they are the sounds of my mother's childhood. Those stories too, those sense memories, have become intermingled. This is Hanging Gardens, and just beyond it is Dungarwadi. Uh, the Towers of Silence. My mother and I are in a cab, winding our way through the jam-packed streets of Bombay with the landmarks that seem culled from fantasy novels, like Dungarwadi, or in English, the Towers of Silence. With Parsis bury their dead, or leave them out to be eaten by vultures. The Dungarwadis are in reality not really towers at all, but look rather more like short and stumpy giant wells, except less deep, and more dead bodies. My people are Parsis, Zoroastrians. Centuries ago, they came to India from Persia, long before it was Iran. It made sense in that drier climate to create a religious rite where the cleansing of the dead was done by birds of prey feasting on human carrion. It made less sense in the swampy tropics of Bombay, but the Parsis were here and they prospered here. So the towers of silence, where the dead are brought to be picked clean. And then there's a very complex mechanism by which the bones, once there's stripped clean are disposed of. And so it's in the top of these towers that the dead are left. This is the Parsi ritual of death. A little smelly. Well, it was exciting. While the abattoir was within snacking range. So the, the vultures would eat at the abattoir and snack on Parsis. The abattoir is another word for the slaughterhouse. My mother has told me stories from when she was growing up about friends sitting down for tea on their posh Malabar Hill apartment balconies when a finger or part of a hand would just fall from the sky, landing between the teapot and the biscuits, a finger dropping into a full cup of tea. Bone china. 
Parsis were seen as exemplary and eccentric, and they've been mm, inbreeding for centuries. If you are not pure of blood, you are not allowed into the community, not allowed to tie the sacred thread, signaling your entrance into adulthood around your wrist. And you never got a sacred thread? No, I w would not be allowed to get one, even today, if I said I wanted. Because my mother married out of the community. Men can marry out of the community, because men know what they're doing. And they were inbred for centuries. I know. It explains so much. My neuroses. No, I mean, it doesn't. That is not. Many bosses have very real mental problems. And yours don't come, yours come from your grandfather. My British grandfather. Yeah, yeah, British, Irish, whatever grandfather. Thanks, so. colonialism. My Irish-British grandfather, a madman poet who came to India in the 1920s and fell in love with my grandmother, a Parsi beauty, so beautiful that I've been told she was presented before the English court in a gold-spun sari. My grandmother would go on to be the first female principal of Bombay's Elphinstone College, a formidable intellectual. It was my grandfather, the poet, who carried the manic-depressive gene, which he passed on to my mother, and in some small way, to me. There's a story my mom tells about him, how he once, in a manic fit, ran about the house naked, lighting the curtains on fire. Fitting, in a way. Parsis worship fire. This is a fire temple. Ah. That's a Parsi temple. This is Parsi dairy. Abhi bridge se chopati koega, huh? Ah, and there is the western setting sun. See, this is what I saw every day from the terrace of our house. The house that no longer exists. The house they called Scarsdale. It's pretty spectacular. Sunset over the ocean, yeah, over the Arabian Sea. It was once said, the sun never sets over the British Empire. Except my mother, a colonial child, born the year before India's independence, saw it set every day. It was a sunset that left deep scars. You're listening to the California Report magazine. Today, we're rebroadcasting a personal story from KQED's Sandhya Dirks. It's a story about what it means to live with historical trauma, a story that's deeply intimate, but also resonates with so many Californians whose parents have come here from somewhere else. The day we set out for Ajanta, my mother's caves, there's a huge protest. Dalits, lower caste Hindus, the ones that used to be called untouchables, are celebrating the centennial of a battle important to them, Bhima Korgon. They say it tells a different narrative, that Dalits were not always resigned to their caste work of cleaning trash and toilets, going along with upper caste supremacy and rule, but real warriors fighting. Hindu and Marathi nationalists counter and say they're celebrating a British battle, a colonial victory. Riots ensue. Someone dies. The big riots happen in the cities, but they ripple out. In the villages, we pass burnt bus skeletons lying on their sides. 
Yeah, it's strange. I mean, the city is, there are very few vehicles. A statewide bond, a strike is issued, and cities close up shop. You want to know what's terrible? What? I want to go straight into where the action is. Yes, Sandhya, but I'd rather not. <laughs> People are filled with this sort of inhuman zealousness where they don't, re where everything is recognized as an object, I think, something against you. I've been in intense, rioty situations in uh, the Bay Area recently. I had just reported on white supremacists descending on Berkeley, and I wanted to say something about the way in which this inhuman zealousness is just everywhere now not just in India with the rise of Hindu nationalism and increasing violence against Dalits, Muslims, and Sikhs. It's a uniquely Indian version of a universal story of rising tribalism and violent intolerance. There's Ambedkar. Yeah. But I don't get a chance to say that because my ma interrupts me, pointing at a statue of the Dalit hero B.R. Ambedkar, a key player in the fight for Indian independence. Ambedkar wrote India's first constitution. He was the minister of law and justice in India's first democratically elected government. And he was a Dalit, from the lowest caste. Ambedkar argued that Dalits should reject Hinduism with the ravages of the caste system and embrace Buddhism, a new kind of Buddhism, different than the Buddhists who built the caves we are going to see, Neo-Buddhism. It's so like my mother, to be distracted by these historical points of interest, not really realizing that I, her daughter, was trying to tell her a story from my life. So now I bring you a classic sound of a petulant adult regressing into adolescence, the drawn outside. This part road we're going to take, which will be tenant. Did you see the goats yesterday? I think you were all sleeping. No, we saw the goats yesterday, Mom. The years I was estranged from my mother, I wasn't rejecting her, not really. I think I was trying to push away the depressions, like somehow she embodied the sadness I felt stalking me like a shadow. I didn't want to be her echo, but then I realized at some point I was exactly that. I was her daughter. I could hear her voice in mine, see her hands when I looked at my own. Her depressions, those crept across me too. Being distant didn't mean I could make myself different than her. It didn't erase the wound. It deepened it. Much of the circumstances in my life have been negative. Everybody's life had like a circumstance. No, I'm serious, Mom. But if you let Not it everybody was married to your father. <laughs> I still I still think that you're when you focus on the negative it makes No, it it hurts me. And I just don't want to say it hurt you. I'll try not to. What can I tell you? Because you have so many positive things. I do, and I'm loved by many people. But I only focus on the people who don't love me and who should. I know my mother thinks that one of those people has been me, our semi-estrangement, our distance. I always wanted to be as brilliant and as beautiful as my mother. But I did not want to end up as lonely as I sometimes fear she has been. Sandhya, your mother is a world-class escapist. She has a PhD in escapism and procrastination. Though my therapist did point out you do not need a PhD in these subjects. My mother reaches for a cigarette, a habit she knows I disapprove of. 
Excuse me, I when you start talking like this, I... So talking about what? I'm now Love. confused of being high maintenance. Since I have no idea what it means. I know she's lived with the belief that I don't love her. Nothing could be further from the truth. I've loved her too much and not enough, both. To get to Ajanta, we travel through a part of Maharashtra with a large population of both Dalits and Muslims. We stop and visit other caves. There are man-made caves everywhere here, including other Buddhist caves in the city of Aurangabad. Today, more and more Dalits are embracing Ambedkar's neo-Buddhism. Inside one cave, a man has lit a candle and he's praying. These are tourist sites, heritage sites, but for some they have become alive again as spaces for worship and prayer. This is what I meant by the neo-Buddhists beginning to take Buddhism seriously. The neo-Buddhists. And Buddhism coming back. These are all neo-Buddhists. Dalits. Yeah. Who then wanted a religion, need a religion. Because Hinduism. No, I mean, it, some people just need religion. Yeah. But I mean, Dalits are, were. Well, Hindus, Hindu had the caste system. Ambedkar right. had this brilliant idea. I know. How to get them out of the caste system, but he didn't mean for them to really become Buddhists. And now they're becoming Buddhists. Yes. See, you will never find such elaborate pillars at Ajanta. And then we are there, at Ajanta. We enter from above the ravine into which the caves are carved. <laughs> Do you want to take local guides? Some of the guides for hire waiting up here in the sun sort of approach us. They can never figure out my mom. Is she Indian, foreign? She swats them away. We don't need a tour guide, she says. I'm the expert here. As we climb down the concrete steps, we scan the whole hillside and see the caves written across the surface of the rock. My mom is starting to get excited. That's my cave. She sees her babies, her caves. 17. She's home. Those three are mine, mm -hmm. but 17 in particular. Mummy and I are still fighting a little bit, relearning how to talk to each other, maybe. You don't always listen to me. Sorry. You're, res you're responding to a conversation you're having in your head? Yes. As opposed to a conversation you're actually having with your daughter? Yeah. And I'm just, that sometimes frustrates me. I know. But you're also frustrated because all of these guys are trying to tell you what to do in a place that you know like the back of your hand, which I get, that would, I would be frustrated too. Remember talking about talking to myself? I do, all the time. I know. I'm lonely, I, I live without conversation, so you end up talking to yourself. Well, we're just gonna try to get you a little bit better at talking to other people, mm -hmm. like your daughter. You're also oversensitive <laughs> to it. And maybe With due reason, I'm not saying. Okay. This is one of the places I grew up. The last time I came to Ajanta, I came without my mother. I came to the caves on another kind of pilgrimage. I had been in a relationship and I got pregnant. 
because I knew the person did not love me and did not want the child, because I did not want to bring a child into an uncertain situation. I wasn't ready. I was a waitress, a part-time student, trying to finally get my degree. I wanted to know I could be a mother, and at that time, I felt I could not. I had an abortion. It was the sensible thing to do. It still is the sensible thing to have done. There was another reason. What ran through the seams of my family, the dark moods, the nothing that would sometimes wash over me and make it impossible to function, the feeling of a broken brain. My grandfather, the bipolar poet, passed on his illness to my mother, but really it was the depressions which would steal her from me, caves built by misfiring chemicals in the chasms of her mind. I had them too, and I did not want to pass on that particular kind of cave-making. A month after the abortion, I found myself climbing the stairs to Ajantha alone. I walked to my mom's favorite cave, Cave 17. In the back antechamber is a giant statue of the Buddha, carved in round and silent stone. It was there that I wept. I wept for the child that wasn't. I wept for my own childhood, at the mother I was not to be. I wept for the mother I mothered, who also mothered me. The sound filled up the dark room, echoed and danced, and then it was absorbed back into the rock. My mother plunges into the caves with a kind of reverence. This is so lovely, with the devotee. This is a form of worship for her. So notice this because you'll see these motifs in other caves. Not at the altar of the Buddha, but at the altar of history, the tracks we've made across time and land. And that really is, in many ways, one of the greatest narratives of all time. What my mother ultimately worships is narrative the stories we have told each other. Now I'm going to my favorite cave. This is your favorite this cave? This is my favorite, but this is a taxing cave. Why is it taxing? Lot to see, lot to think about. She just blew a kiss to the cave. Well, this is one of my favorite, all-time favorite. She lived in this cave. And I lived with her living in this cave. Depression doesn't mean to make you selfish. It just occludes so much beyond your own pain. This is one of the ways it steals, holds you off in caves of our own making. Sometimes the loss I feel, the one that clings to my skin cells and someplace deeper inside, feels like it is mine only. Say something. Something. Echo? Echo. Until I sit with my mother and realize these things are part of both of us, that somehow we can claim together in the caves. Hello, Ajanta. My mother and I, in very different ways, are both colonial children with colonial ghosts. It's hard for colonial children to belong. We are born out of occupation, and so the space we occupy is never completely ours. 
Distant mountains may always be blue, but they are never that distant. Historical trauma is passed on in families, in culture, in a nation, in the world. Last summer, I visited a federal prison in Victorville, California. It had been turned into a detention facility for immigrants, traveling treacherously long ways to seek asylum in America. But these immigrants were different than the narrative on the news. They were South Asian, mostly Sikh, fleeing violence they say is being stoked by Hindu nationalism back home in India. They came here and ended up in a literal prison. Any journey of separation is also a history of trauma. But somehow, instead of learning, we watch the next cruel historical event ripple, spreading a spider web of scars that one day will demand to be traced. That was reporter Sandhya Dirks with a rebroadcast of her story, Cave Woman of India. Cameron Fraser composed the original music. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our engineer this week is Katie McMurrin with additional engineering from Seal Muller. Our director is Susie Racho. Victoria Maleone is our senior editor. And our editorial team also includes Julia McAvoy, Olivia Allen Price, Vinnie Tong, Amanda Font, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Happy New Year. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, presenting Trade-Offs, a new podcast that tries to make sense of our costly and complicated healthcare system. Subscriptions at tradeoffs.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.